Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. For those of you listening to the recording, you just missed an overview of the agenda. We're just getting started. Um, and if you missed the last class uh, on the uh, Precepts Program website, the, the recordings are posted. There's a link to SoundCloud there. So talking about the learning record, I wanted to check in and find out how that's going. You know, um, if, if anyone would like to share, you know, their experience of making an observation, um, what, what did you notice about it? Did anything unexpected or, or surprising? Tom, I first have a little question because I've been struggling on something with the learning record. Uh, the first part of the learning record, I understand, but I'm not so sure about the consciousness and the relationality, what, what I'm supposed to do for those two um, cases. Um, yeah, so let me, let me get out my notes. So the consciousness is basically just what's your background state of consciousness at the time you were making the observation. Right. Were you agitated? Were you sleepy? Did you feel, you know, wide awake? I, I, I think it's still confusing for me. I think it's because I mix the emotion and the, and like if I'm agi agitated, I'm considering that like kind of an emotion. Yeah, yes, it, it could be. So um, this is just a, you know, a, a way of, of choosing a few categories to bring mm -hmm. our attention or awareness to different things that are happening while we're making the observation. So emotions, you know, being one category to look for, just a prompt, a reminder, I should look for emotions, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Consciousness is, is another prompt that's just asking you to look or what your mental state is at. You know, where's your mind at? Are you feeling mindful? Are you feeling sleepy? Are you feeling distracted? Does that make sense? Yes. So for one of the examples for consciousness, I said I was on the, on the edge and ready to act. Is that a correct way to describe that or not? I think so. I think I understand what you what you're getting at. Um, feeling feeling a readiness, right? Okay. A readiness to, to act. Yeah, uh, that's that's fine for being consciousness. We uh, we don't have to uh, be too particular about getting it right. These are just prompts to help you um, unpack or categorize what's going on with yourself at the time you're doing it. And then one last question for the relationality. Is it like me with the situation or with the people? Because for that example, I would, I jump back in my old habit in my past. Yeah, it's, 
is that what is that a correct way to describe it and i said i was thinking of doing i was just thinking of doing i, I was it everything was automatic is that a correct description for that um well when we say relational we we're talking about how you're relating to either the person or the event or the object, whatever it is that you're doing the observation on. Kind of what's the quality of the relating or how are you relating to it? Okay. Thank you. I'm sorry. Maybe it's, it's the language too that's an obstacle there. Okay. Thank you so much, Doug. You're welcome. Please don't be sorry. When, when we ask questions, it often helps everyone else. I had the same sort of question about sensations and perceptions, because to me, those words mean the same thing. Yeah. But I decided it wasn't that important, and I could just use it as a... I'm looking for my notes. Hold on. Okay. Use it as a way to like look at different well, sensations would be more like, um, you know, the embodied physical experience, like pain, pressure, heat, right? Those kind of embodied sensations. Do you feel something in the pit of your stomach? Um, perceptions, more obviously being more what we perceive. Let's see. But again, I, you know, I encourage everyone not to get stuck on uh, doing it exactly right or wrong, right? These are just prompts for helping you um, unpack or categorize the different things you're experiencing. And so we don't have to fill out, you know, I think there's six, if I remember right, you know, different categories. You don't have to fill them all out. Sometimes you won't um, be aware of any particular, you know, perception or, or consciousness. Um, but again, they're just prompts. Todd? Yes. Um, you may have gone over this before I was able to get here. Um, form, what is the meaning of form on the, on the form? The form is kind of like, what were you physically doing? I was sitting at my table writing, okay. right? I was washing the dishes when I noticed, or X, Y, Z, right? Ah, here we go, let's see. There it is, last page. So this was in the learning record handout. Um, and I will point you to it just so you have it real fast. So if we'll go back to sharing for a moment, share. And this is the, our website where we're posting all of our schedules and information. And here under documents, there's learning record. And I think it's near the and, nope, here it is. So form, what was the physical aspect you observed? 
stick with what might be observed in terms of physical forms and their interactions. So sensations, looking for immediate and basic reactions, attraction, aversion, neutral, perception. What sensory perception did you observe? Uh, I saw a bird. I heard, you know, my skin was orange and nipple. Thoughts and emotions, that one's pretty self-explanatory. Consciousness, what did you notice about the underlying quality of consciousness? Agitated, calm, swift, slow moving. And then relationality is listed as the relational quality of what you observed. How did you notice how your activity or interactions affected the connections in the situation? Hopefully that's helpful. What other observations from the first week of the learning record? For me, it's been um, interesting. I was uh, doing pretty well. Uh, well, I was being pretty consistent um, after our first meeting. And then I've spent much of the month at my partner's family farm where it's very peaceful and quiet. And uh, there are, uh, it's just a place where I'm not going to be inclined to be especially reactive. So I admit I have not been as consistent the past two, uh, two weeks or so because I'm, uh, not a lot's happening. It's <laughs> so that's that's interesting to note in and of itself. And I'm sure when I uh, get back to Austin, I'm going to get really smacked in the face with that. Uh, but one thing I also that well, let me let me pause you before you go further. And I'll just say that it's important to remember we aren't just looking to pick out the bad stuff. Well, that's yeah. It's actually something that I came. It, it, it's more like even the good stuff, though. I'm just like I'm just in this like state of like every. I'm not everything's just nice <laughs> um but something i did notice like after my first learning record entry was um i could i could very easily make this all about the bad stuff it would be so simple for me to fall into that and just like end up pathologizing myself so um so you're learning you're learning already you're learning how you you uh, somehow were gravitating towards the negative instead yeah. of the positive yeah That's so i am i'm always i'm going to you know try to make an effort to um, I may, maybe I, maybe it won't be feasible to get it one-to-one -one right away, but aim for sort of like, well, okay, one, one day I have a reflection about one that's suboptimal and then I'll maybe the next time I'll try to cultivate a reaction uh, or a, a record of one, of a more optimal situation. Uh, Todd, I have a question about what Allison just said. And here's where I get stuck. So I love Allison's um, aspiration to balance those, but that's the way that resonated with me as I thought, oh, I might try that is that I'm creating yet another construct <laughs> that I'm sort of doing this control thing that I can do so well. Um, and so I'd like your input on that. Uh, well, it seems like the learning record is working, right? So you see the ways in which you want to control, right? You could do an observation about that or not. Mm. Um, 
I, I feel like I didn't really understand what your question was though. Ah, so, um, I will try to reframe it then. Um, the way that I use, I'll put it this way, the way that, that I use the learning record is to jot down just a little um, soundbite of what's going on in that moment and then to process it and then to let it go as soon as I'm able to do that. Sometimes that's harder than other times because I don't want to get stuck in the cycle of, I prefer not to get stuck in the cycle. And I remember from one of the, the books, one of the, the, the times with Peg on how to meditate that the process of sitting and meditating and when something comes up to be present with it and let it go because that's good practice at letting things go. So the point being that when I use the learning record, I'll, I'll make a little cryptic note. I'll sit with that and as soon as I can let it go, I do. But if the day happens to be, and I don't, this is a broad stroke, if, if a, a, a larger, if I observe that a large part of that particular day or half day or whatever is filled with what one might label challenging things or negative things, I don't try to adjust that. That's what's coming up. I don't need for me to balance that. That is exactly my practice edge. Um, and if the next day is filled with or half day or hour, primarily what we might label as joyful things or positive things or awe-inspired, you know, just then, then I go with, with that. And so it's not that I'm saying that there, there's a right or wrong approach. I'm just saying for me, something moved inside as Allison was talking of, oh no, Nelda, you are so good at creating these little boxes of rules and approaches. <laughs> that would not work for you because then you would just be heaping one more, you know, mm -hmm. like, like the aspiration of enlightenment, you know, it's like, yeah. Is that clear? Does that make more sense? Yeah. So what I would say is that um, we're using the learning record as a tool to um, gain some insight into the way we meet the world. Um, by using this process, which forces you to kind of pick it apart in a different way. And um, specifically, you know, you can do these observations about anything, about any incident you met that, you know, anything that happened in your day. Um, but I would encourage you, you know, as we go through each precept to try and use them around the precept. So when we, you know, this month, we're, we're, or tonight we're gonna to talk about speaking truthfully, right? And you're gonna be practicing kind of with that in your daily life for the next month. So it would make sense to pick observations where you know that you realized you told a fib or you exaggerated a little bit, right? And then do a little observation about that around the precepts. So once we get into it a little more, I think it'll become a little more clear on how to pick what to observe, right? As we do this work together. Um, and that, and just, I'll encourage you, don't, don't overthink it. You know, if you, if you're doing all positive things or all negative things or all the same kinds of things, 
or a different thing every time on purpose, you know, you'll notice that after a while as well, right? And, and that, that'll be a new observation for you. You don't have to go in, um, you know, with a perfect plan in the beginning. Thank you. Any other questions or reflections or observations about beginning to use the learning record? I feel like I function with a lot of reactivity and automatism and- Oh, you too? I feel like I never pose in front of a situation. I just automatically react. Yes, well, you, we don't have to do the observations when they happen, right? We can do them, you know, an hour, a day, two, you know, a week later when you realize, oh, I, you know, I want something to study. I need to do an observation. You know, perhaps you picked the thing that you reacted to three days ago that you were not, you know, you couldn't control at the time. But now that you have some, a few days away from it, you can sit down and do an observation about it with a little more space. Okay. All right, well, let's move on. Okay, so uh, in anticipation of this class, we were to read the first five chapters of uh, the Rosetto book, which is basically her introduction and then the process of uh, how we go about working with the precepts. I'm looking for, I got too many things open. Here we go. <clears throat> um, the, her process of working with the precepts. And you may have noticed, um, and then we'll get into the first precept, which is in, in the Rosetto book, I take up the way of, of speaking truthfully. So she begins with some of her own stories, her own reactivity with her and her husband, which is, Always good anecdotes to hear from um, well-established Zen teachers. Remember that they're, they're people. Uh, and she talks about the precepts and the way we use them as being kind of different uh, uh, analogies or metaphors. You know, the precepts as a beacon of light, which kind of illuminate what we're doing, right? They're a reminder that, that uh, casts a light forward kind of into our daily interactions, uh, telling us to pay attention. She also thinks about them as a, a sign over the door, right? Saying, enter here. When you realize you're, you're uh, tangling with a precept or, or about to cross a line, right? that can be a little, uh, an entry point here. A trailhead, as, as Peg likes to say it, right? a trailhead being, you know, the entry point at the beginning of the trail that disappears into the woods, right, where the path starts. So that's the entry point of where the path starts. Um, she does warn us, you know, that uh, not to use them as shoulds or should nots, use them more in uh, Zen terms of a riddle or an inquiry into um, how to live. How to live a good life. So let's talk about her process, right? And how we're gonna work with them. 
throughout the year. Um, Diane likes, she begins an opening up with a, uh, an, a metaphor of a trapeze and a trapeze artist, right? And the dead spot that the trapeze artist encounters, you know, when swinging back and forth. So we can all imagine, you know, being on the swing or the big pendulum going back and forth. There's a lot of movement, there's a lot of activity, um, but at each, you know, each cycle, there's a dead spot. There's a moment of non-action, right? A tiny pause right at the top, right? An involuntary pause that uh, anticipates the change of direction. And it's in this pause, in this dead spot, if we can hang there, this is, uh, Fabienne, what you were talking about reactivity, right? In those, in those moments where we are awake and notice, right? Our reactivity happening or about to happening, about to happen, there's a, a little pause, a little dead spot there, right? And this is the analogy that she's talking about. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting to me that, you know, in the trapeze analogy, this is the spot where you let go. This is the spot where if you want anything to happen, to perform any trick, you have to let go. So hanging in the dead spot, it's not about brute force. It's not about willing yourself to do something, but it's about timing, right? And recognizing the timing. Uh, in our Zen parlance, the dead spot would be a moment of inaction, right? A moment of not knowing. Often, uh, we don't like that feeling very much, right? We don't like uh, not knowing what's going to happen next. We don't like the moment of anticipation. Often, what we want most is just to get through it, right? Do something. Move. Right, to hang out in this dead spot, floating in air, maybe with your stomach coming up in your chest, wondering if you're about to fall. Right? It's a shaky feeling. And part of what we work on in our meditation practice, in training ourselves to sit upright and still and literally not reacting to whatever's coming up because that's what we're doing when we're meditating. We're, we're literally, whether, you know, not moving. We're literally not reacting. When we have an itch, we don't scratch, right? We're trained when we have a thought about planning the groceries, we don't chase it. We don't try and continue to plan the groceries. We just come back and we observe what's happening. <clears throat> so our practice is learning to, to, our process, I'm sorry, is learning to, uh, be comfortable with those dead spots. As Joko would say, you know, practice um, allows us to create a bigger and bigger container, right? Where we can contain more and more of the ups and downs of our daily life without getting thrown off by them. The opposite of that, right? The habitual reaction in our analogy 
would just be hanging on like we always did and just swinging back and forth, right? Same old swing. I go this way, something happens, I always come right back, right? Whatever your reactive pattern is, continuing to swing it over and over again. Instead of doing that, right, the dead spot is the place of inquiry where the growth happens. This is the time when we, if we're awake, we try to engage the observer, right? The, the practice of um, learning record observations, right? After a year of doing those, you may find yourself doing them quickly without pen and paper in the moment. Oh, gosh, what was I thinking, feeling consciousness there before you react, right? We're gonna, we're gonna get comfortable with that dead spot, that place of inquiry where growth happens. Um, there's a teacher named Ryushin Paul Holler. He's, uh, he was the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center for quite a while, and trained as a, a Buddhist monk somewhere in the East. I don't remember before that. He's, he's got a funny accent. He's from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Paul Holler, and he once did a talk that I've heard, I've heard a recording of it, I've heard it many times, and he had a saying that uh, he kept repeating, that awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. <clears throat> awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. The crucible being, right, um, the forge, the, the heat source that melts down whatever it encounters, right? Tur turn steel, lead, bronze, whatever, into molten metal. Your awareness, right, when you're able to conjure it, is the crucible. And alchemy, alchemy being that magical property that, that turns, you know, dross into gold, right? It turns nothing into something valuable. Awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. So we're gonna learn to be comfortable with that dead spot, to engage our awareness, right? And the fodder that we're using is our daily life, right? These observations, these reactions, these little incidents, little moments in time. We're putting them into the crucible of our awareness and we're transforming them into personal growth, into freedom and liberation. That's what we're doing. Any, any questions about the dead spot or chapter three? Reflections there? How does that strike you? Scary, makes sense? I like it. It's it's a good uh, it's a good idea. Um, uh, it's you know Flint's recently been talking about the the interchange between teacher and student. That's kind of that space between. It sounds like a little bit of that too. Um, but um, 
Yeah, it is. I like what you said about the timing because that's so true. You're letting go and you don't know what, what you know, if you're going to catch the next, you know, if you think of the trapeze artist as sometimes catching another uh, bar or something like that. Mm -hmm. So the timing has to be really, really good. Anyway, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Yes, also is important to let that time be a time of curiosity. Like, what is going to happen? We don't know what's going to happen. If you right. assume it's going to happen, then you've already settled the story. Right. So you bring that beginner's mind to it, that openness. It doesn't know. Mitch, you were going to say something? For me, it brings up an issue of trust. Trust, sort of trust in myself and trust in others. And trust, uh, because to take that leap, you have to trust yourself and you have to trust something in the future also or someone else. Uh, and then I guess you have to look inward and outward to uh, see how that is going to affect you and allow you to make that leap. Makes sense. I don't know about others, Todd, but uh, having taken this class before and having worked with this concept concept of dead spot, there's two things that um, are calming for me. And one is um, realizing that I am absolutely not in control of very much, except maybe this, and a lot of the times not that, and that nothing is personal. Nothing is personal. Everyone brings their ancient twisted karma to every circumstance. So if the dead spot, and by the way, some of them for me have been very long where I'm waiting for my response in what feels like an overly long period in which another is to reply to me and just waiting or take action. You know, what, what do I do when the wait is not just a minute or if, when in a interpersonal relationship, but I just, I just wanted to put forth that for me, those have been two very um, helpful um, tools to use in that dead spot. And that is, um, I'm not in control of someone else's decision on our relationship. That's their package. And whatever that decision is, is not personal. Thank you. Okay. Chapter four, now we're getting into the process, right, of how we work, how we work with each precept. So we begin with a precept. We notice our behavior. We notice our reactionary patterns. And if we are uh, attuned well enough, we can start to uncover what are the core beliefs 
that are driving those reactionary patterns. So in Rosetto's process, she, she says, when we, when we find ourselves you know, um, in a moment where we are violating a precept or tangling with one or feel ourselves about to cross a line, right? And we have that, that we see that warning sign or that, that beacon of the precept calling us. Step one is to engage the observer. Right? We want to find, like you said, Karen, we want to find that don't know mind. We want to try and take a little sidestep back away from ourselves and see if we can look at the situation more as an outside observer. Like, uh, uh, I want to say archaeologist, but no, anthropologist, that's the word, the one who studies people. <laughs> like an anthropologist. Hmm, what is this unusual people and their customs? I wonder what this means to them, right? This is an excellent one for your families, by the way, when you're home visiting your families and, and uh, they get into their, you know, whatever particular ways and patterns they have of relating. Uh, I always find that one useful is to engage the, the mind of the observer and the anthropologist. What are these interesting people in their ways? So we engage the observer like a scientist. We're not trying to meddle with the situation at this point. We just want to watch it. We don't want to try to stop it or to change it, but to see what we can notice. From there, we try and deepen the observ observation. Um, we use our mindfulness to turn the examiner inward, right? to examine our sensations, our emotions, the thoughts that are coming up, the stories that we're telling yourselves. Um, does this, this should sound familiar, right? Sounds a little bit like the learning record, doesn't it? Right, because they go hand in hand. Right? It's a similar, similar style of process. So, Deepening the observation. These are like we did in the learning record with these different categories of asking questions about the situation. This is how we deepen our observation. I remember the um, first time I took this class, we were doing the precept of meeting others on equal ground, and which we'll get to, I think, in one or two sessions. And, um, you know, during the month, I think it was at, you know, I was at a dinner party, maybe a cocktail party, I don't recall exactly where. But I had been working with meeting others on equal ground. And, you know, and one of my personal kind of condition patterns is um, often, you know, kind of placing myself maybe in a one up position over other people for no, you know, not that I've earned that, just, just habitual thinking that. And um, I had noticed that often when I met people, especially in social situations, I was trying to figure out, you know, how did this play out? And I remember being in a situation where, you know, there was someone uh, I was either introduced to or a 
an acquaintance to reintroduce to. And they were trying to have a, you know, a bit of a polite conversation with me. And I was, I, I felt that, that beacon sign go off, that warning sign, like, oh, I, I'm, for whatever reason, I feel like this is beneath me or they're beneath me. And so, you know, I tried to take a moment right there, you know, in the, in the pause between whatever topics we were talking about and even my observation, what did I know about, what did I notice about, you know, uh, the form, the thoughts, the emotions. And what was really interesting to me was it, it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with the thoughts or the form or the emotions. I noticed the form of how I acted. I didn't face people. Someone would come up and talk to me and I would talk more like shoulder to shoulder or turned this way, you know, I can't do it here and there, but where we're, you're both kind of facing in a similar direction. And occasionally I would talk kind of like that, but I wouldn't actually turn and face them, right? It was my way of kind of keeping people away. Uh, and that was very interesting to me. You know, I, it's not something I don't think I would have ever noticed before. I, it was completely unconscious. I had no idea I was doing it. Um, and so that was, a, that was a great learning experience for me. <clears throat> and over the next, you know, several months and during the year, I, be, I took up the practice of whenever I noticed it to stop and turn and face the person. And that was really weird at first, <laughs> but also very helpful. And I think it, it, it changed the way I met people, literally. I mean, physically changed the way I met people, you know, in the literal sense, but it changed the, the quality of the meeting. So that's just one little example about deepening the observation. So when our mindfulness bell goes off, right? When we have an inkling that there's some work to be done, we engage the observer without meddling with it, without trying to stop or change it, just watching it. We try and deepen the observation and in that moment, we go inward, we look at the sensations, emotions, thoughts, forms, right? Because this is where we're going to learn. This is where we're going to grow. It's going to tell us things that um, we're not conscious before. So this is not a quick fix, I will warn you, right? Her process is not a quick fix. All it's going to do, as a matter of fact, it's probably not going to fix anything, at least not initially. Um, many people report when they start this process, it seems as if things get worse before they get better. Um, it's just like maybe when you, you know, you get a new car, your friend gets a new car, all of a sudden you see that car everywhere. You didn't know anybody drove that car before. Now you see it all over the place, right? So if you notice yourself, say, when we're talking about speaking truthfully, if you know yourself, you know, catch yourself exaggerating, you're probably going to catch yourself exaggerating all the time, you know, and, and don't panic, right? It's, you're not becoming worse. You're just starting to notice your, your habituated patterns. So this is not a quick fix, but there's a power in the awareness, right? We are, this awareness, this crucible of awareness, in the end, over time, is going to end up 
creating choices that you didn't have before. When you're reactive, you know, by definition, by it being a reaction, it's not a choice. But with time, we're gonna turn reactions into choices. And you might have the moment where you say, hmm, I wonder how I'd like to be. At first, we're gonna miss our reactions. It's normal, right? You're gonna, you're gonna fall into the same condition pattern that you normally did with whichever precept it is. Um, it's really important, this is the warning label here on the precepts class. This is really important not to get into judging mind. Right? We're not here to be the you know, ethical judge and jury of ourselves first and foremost. And also the warning label number two is don't do this with others, right? We want you to have friends and family when this class is over. So if you start becoming the, the moral police, you know, uh, you're likely to uh, drive some people away. So don't worry if you miss this, these reactions, you'll get plenty of opportunities. Right? And you can always kind of go through this process, the Rosetto process of engaging the observer and deepening the observation at a later date, right? When you realize you missed it, maybe at the end of the day or the next day, you can sit down and you can do a, a learning record observation of it. So from the precept to the behavior and the reactionary patterns. Now we're trying to uncover, dig deeper down to what, getting closer to that core belief, right? The things that are unconsciously dragging us along through life. So the next step is to examine requirements. Underneath almost all these reactions are a set of requirements that you may have. So we want to ask ourselves, what requirements do I have? Um, you know, for example, how do we think things should be? I think everybody should treat me with respect, right? I think, you know, I require that no one interrupts me ever, which is a good thing. I'm not like that. You should, you should see my family. So I apologize for interrupting you guys. It's, uh, it's, that's my habitual pattern also. How do we think things should be? And we can, we can apply that to others, the others that we're dealing with. How do we think they should be? Or the world, how do we think society should be? Well, politics shouldn't be like that, right? Right, we just wanna start uncovering, I see Karen chuckling there. Uh, we want, to, we want to start uncovering what these tacit requirements we have of ourselves and others and the world are. So we need to stop at this moment and see what's coming up. Um, irritation or agitation, this is a good indicator, a good indicator that you have a requirement that's not being met. Right. Peg would always used to say, you know, 
she had her, she had, when she got in the car, she had a requirement that everybody was supposed to pull over and get out of her way. <laughs> right, it sounds funny, right? But if you get in the car and you're immediately agitated, you know, what, what requirement do you have? And Diane Rosetto says, you know, she wants, she wants you to stop at this moment. Um, not to not stop in the way of stop what you're doing, but more a pause, you know, a pause to study your experience. And in this pause, we can start to notice, notice what's actually happening. Or if you're doing it at a later date, what actually happened. What actually happened? What did, what did the other person actually do? Not what you thought they did, right? Um, they picked up a French fry off my plate, right? Gosh, you know, how horrible. <clears throat> or, you know, they cut me off in traffic. So using the French fry example, we're not saying, oh, she thinks I'm overweight and was trying to make sure I didn't eat that much food. That's a story we have, right? So we're, we're looking for what actually happened. The person reached over and picked up a French fry. Hmm. So just going back to our warning, right? Please, please, please don't evaluate other people based on the precepts. This is not where I want your, your psychic energy to go, right? That will take you into a frame of mind that's probably not helpful for you and those around you, right? And again, please don't evaluate yourself based on your compliance to the precepts, right? We're not trying to give ourselves a, you know, A plus or F minus score here. We're just trying to learn, right? This is just a place of inquiry. And if you get caught up in that judging mind, or if you get caught up in shame, um, you're going to disable yourself and we probably won't see you in the next class or two because that's no fun. But these little transgressions, these little things that we're gonna notice about ourselves, I mean, this is what it means to be human, right? Anything you're noticing or judging in others, you will probably notice or, you know, that you're doing yourself and judging in yourself. Anything you discover in yourself, Notice that what you're doing, you will probably discover and notice in others. This is a good lesson. This is not a problem. Um, if you understand this, if you digest this and take it in, let it work on you, it should soften you. It should soften your judgments of others, right? not make them more entrenched. So I'm going to pause there for questions or comments about Rosetto's process, the dead spot and the process.
Um, I um, I liked the um, the part where she said um, that sometimes we have to lie, or sometimes it's it's um, the appropriate response is to lie. When she was just bringing up that, um, it all depends on the whole the whole situation, and I thought that was very helpful because it doesn't it doesn't make um, it doesn't make uh, it doesn't create a dualistic view of of each precept. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Which, which for me, it's very easy to, oh, this is now, this is what I have to do, like 100%, um, and this will make me very good. And yeah, it's very easy to go. I'm from a Catholic background. It's where you go. Yeah. Lots of training there. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. So let's get into our first precept. Uh, in the Rosetto book, she has rearranged the order of the precepts. Um, and uh -oh, and um, she starts with, I take up the way of speaking truthfully as the first one. So any, any ideas or guesses on, on why she's rearranged to start with speaking truthfully? Um, I have to say it was, I don't remember if it was in this chapter or in the introduction, but she talks about how when many of her students decide to start engaging with precepts, they find that speaking truthfully is the one they like feel they need to start with. And that super rang true for me because before this precept was announced, uh, sometime in the, the haze of 2020, um, that really came to me as a thing I I needed to work on. So it was very like fascinating to me to realize that like apparently many other people feel like, oh yeah, that's the one I really need to start with. I mean, and I think for me as a writer and as a writing teacher um, with communication itself sort of being a, a huge component of human interaction, if we are going to engage with the world in a, in a nonviolent way, in a compassionate way, we sort of need to start with the way we uh, address ourselves and address others. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's so true. Um, all of the precepts really, they're all about the quality of relationships and the quality of relating, right? With how we relate to others and we relate to our world. And all these relationships are based on trust, right? Um, if we're not speaking truthfully, if we're if we're undermining trust, right, that quality is impacted, and all of our work is going to stagnate. All right, so this is where we begin, um, and you'll notice she frames it, you know, in in a positive. So uh, traditionally, you know, it's it's normally cast as not lying or not engaging in false speech or even right speech. Um, but in, in Rosetto's method, she states it in a positive outlook, right? 
I take up the way of speaking truthfully. And she even includes um, how one of her students rephrased it. I take up the way of honesty facing the distrust, um, honestly facing the distrust, uncertainty, and fear that propels my tongue to be disloyal to the truth of the moment, this moment. I thought that was an interesting one. I take up the way of honestly facing the distrust, uncertainty, and fear that propels my tongue to be disloyal to the truth of this moment. So this is where we begin. Um, Peg likes to say that, uh, you know, speaking truthfully kind of affirms the weeness, which is very funny to me. Weeness. So uh, as in together, you and I, we, affirming the weeness. So when you speak truthfully, what you're telling the other person is that you have so much confidence in the resilience of the relationship that you can speak about difficult things and it will be okay, right? So when you speak truth, um, right, with the other, you're establishing, you're saying you have confidence, you're establishing trust, right? And it's an invitation for the other to meet you there. So the interesting thing is, you know, the ways in which we don't speak truthfully, right? There's, there's many different ways. Uh, one, you know, is this, the one we often think of is just outright deception, right? And we may have our own uh, stories or rationalizations about why we think you know, we can deceive or why it's okay to, to deceive. But uh, misleading and, and uh, illusion and deception are just a few, a few ways we deceive. We can deceive not only with words, but with looks and gestures, actions, Right, there can be harmless little things as we answer the phone. Oh, sorry, you know, I just have a minute. I need to go just on my way out the door. So deception is the obvious one. And as you work with this in this month, you know, um, pay attention to the way, you know, the little deceptions that we offer up to the world. Uh, in my case, I often noticed that um, uh, it was took the form of exaggerations, right? Often ones that were not that meaningful, which almost didn't have much of a point, right? Uh, you know, when when I'm asked how my day was, I say, "Oh, I was really busy. You know, I had I had eight meetings that day. You know, well, I had five, right? But why did I think it was better to exaggerate to eight? You know." I don't even know. It doesn't even, when you stop and think about it, you know, what, what did that accomplish, right? Mm -hmm. 
again, my pattern was often little exaggerations. <laughs> Pink liked to say her family, uh, her family was uh, full of uh, massive exaggerations, but the ones that were you know, so big that everybody knew it was an exaggeration and, and you weren't trying to deceive them. So that was a gray area. Oh, I had a million meetings today. Like, I liked hers better. I'm like, I need to start doing that. At least that makes more sense. You know, if you're gonna exaggerate, let's blow it out. <clears throat> um, but in addition to the obvious one of deception, <clears throat> silence is often a way that we do not speak truthfully, right? The silence, the ways that we don't speak up. Right? Biting your tongue is not the same thing as speaking truthfully. And we can give ourselves, you know, oh, I'm just not going to say anything. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. We can come up with rationalizations about when we're silent. Um, often our silence we may withhold, right, out of fear of the consequences. Right? Or perhaps um, uh, misgivings about uh, having enough trust in the relationship, like I was saying earlier, right? So someone's got to establish that trust in the relationship. Maybe we're silent because we don't know what to say. Um, and here's a, little, here's a little hint or pointer in those situations. This is kind of like uh, uh, Flint sometimes talks about his little uh, uh, practice jujitsu moves, right? Where you you take the other the other person's energy and weight, you end up flipping them around, and they're on their back, and they don't even know what happened, right? But you you didn't hardly move a finger, right? That's jujitsu using someone else's effort or energy. Um, so what the little jujitsu move is, the little trick is, you can always just start with your experience. You can always just name your experience. Oh, I don't know what to say right now. Or, gosh, that really confuses me. I feel really confused by that. Or, I'm feeling like I really, really want to have the right thing to say right now, but I can't find it. Right? These are little, little ways that um, we can uh, perhaps prevent the silence from continuing, right? Prevent our normal habituated way of just letting things go because we don't know how to do it right, quote, right. Or you could say, I really would like to support you but I don't know what that looks like right now, right? All these things are, are more like stating facts about your personal experience. They aren't judgments, they aren't helping, they aren't fixing, right? But again, they're not remaining silent and they're not avoiding, right? They're continuing the weeness, they're continuing the engagement. And, you're speaking truthfully about your personal experience. You're speaking truthfully about your process. Right? 
And you don't need to have any kind of special language for that. You just need to be, you know, keep it factual, keep it about yourself and about what you're actually, what's actually happening with you. So I think that's a really, really good tool to have in your toolbox when you're taking up the way of speaking truthfully. And again, so taking up the way of speaking truthfully is not just about um, ourselves personally, right? About just our interpersonal relationship. It's also relates to the social sphere. It's not just about personal relationships, but this also needs to be true in the public sphere, right? To speak truthfully about public issues. But again, to do it in a way that connects to other people, that affirms the weeness, right? Of being in it together. Other barriers um, that you may encounter to speaking truthfully um, might be feeling shame about what the truth is, that you think it, it reflects negatively on you and you may have some shame about it. It's a tricky one. Or often we can rationalize that we're, we're, we're just doing it to take care, to take care of other people, to take care to not to hurt their feelings or not to make things worse or not to incur any disapproval. Or often we might tell ourselves stories that uh, you know, our voice doesn't matter, our opinions don't matter. Um, the things are just gonna be the way they are. And allowing these things to go, you know, unsaid, the wrongs to go unremarked. Often our, our failing to engage with the truth is, is based on fear. Um, it can be a real impediment to speaking truthfully, right? We can be afraid to engage with others, to cause some upset, even if it's minor. Uh, sometimes we're just afraid to engage with others' perspectives, right? That we might get swept away by them or we might get too angry. We might be able to, we not, might not be able to tolerate another perspective or those that are opposed to us. Now, one thing I always like to come back to in, in Zen practice is that, you know, we say in our practice that Zen practice is aperspectival, meaning it is, doesn't take any particular perspective. It is able to take any perspective, right? So in those moments where you're meeting someone else with another perspective, it's often a very useful practice exercise to try it on, take on their perspective, try the opposite perspective of yours, see what it's like, what does it feel like? 
what would you have had to believe to have gained that perspective? Right, and this becomes a little bit of play that removes the um, kind of the harshness or the fear around the situation where it's like, oh, I wonder what it would be like to think that way. <clears throat> So as we work with speaking truthfully, we need to avoid kind of the two normal ends of the spectrum that we fall in, right? The silence at the beginning that we talked about or withholding um, and you know, the venting at the other end of the spectrum. I'm just gonna vent my perspective on you. I'm gonna tell you how it is. This is the truth with a capital T and I'm gonna let you have it. Right. What's the middle way between those? Well, the good news is that there's a lot of room between those two ends of the spectrum. There's a lot of possibilities there. So in the next month, you're gonna you know, keep an eye out, an ear out. Try and notice the ways where you find yourself running up to that line of not speaking truthfully or crossing it, or maybe you didn't even realize you crossed it way over until two days later. Let's keep an eye out for those, those enter here signs for this precept, right? And then let's follow the process that we talked about, about engaging the observer, deepening the observation, trying to examine or uncover the requirements that we have, and see if they lead us to some core beliefs we have. There's a lot of opportunity for learning. So I invite your thoughts or questions or comments about speaking truthfully. How are you feeling about this? Looking forward to it or no? I, I have a, I don't know if it's a comment or a question, but and I can't remember if I've read it, and maybe that's where I've got the prompt. But there's something about speaking truthfully to myself. And I, I don't know if she touched on that, but I, I, that's what I find myself engaged with as of late. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. I think that's worthy engagement. Okay. Yeah, I think it's, it's no different. Usually the stories we're telling other people start by telling them to ourselves. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's around the separateness, right? And I don't know, it's just, it's my whole practice sometimes. So I don't know. I'm going to be working with it, though. That's my, that's my comment. <laughs> Good. Well, maybe you'll have some juicy observations next, next month. More than likely. So, so Todd, I have a question. Are we now um, for the month between the next um, meeting focusing our observations on the what we just talked about? Or are we going on, we're going to be reading about the next one, the speaking of others with openness and possibility. So mm -hmm. the observations are, are with the, the first one, right? I mean, right. The, focus, the focus. Yeah, the focus. And of course, you can do observations on whatever else you'd like as well. 
but uh, as we as we go through this year long process, we're going to try and bring a, some more focus to speaking truthfully for this month. Thank you. And then, as you said, reading and preparing for the next one. Okay. Thanks. Okay. If there's nothing else, then uh, we will close with just a little bit of the overview of the introduction from uh, Dale Wright's The Six Perfections, which I know I already went through a little bit of it last time, so I will skip through that. But we'll just get a little bit of a reminder and a flavor here, because this is going to be a really supportive addition to our process. So Dale Wright begins by, well, before I even start there, you know, the, the subtitle to the book is Buddhism and the Cultivation of Character, which I love. So the Rosetto book is about studying the precepts. The Six Perfections is about cultivating character. Uh, from a Buddhist perspective. So Dale talks about, um, he begins with saying, you know, the, the question he was pressed with is how, how shall he live? How shall I live my life? As what kind of person? Right, and that, that for mo many people, this isn't a, um, a practice. This isn't something that they're working towards, right? It's more haphazard or uh, maybe not you know, to that extreme, but much more hit and miss. It's rare for someone to uh, take up the way of trying to cultivate this systematically, right? But this is what the training in the six perfections are. But the Buddhist approach is to realize that um, there is the possibility of freedom and liberation, right? The Buddhist approach is to try to realize this freedom and liberation that the Buddha, the Buddha spoke about. And it's often said that, you know, enlightenment is a happy accident, right? Or as an accident, but it's also true that, you know, if you train yourself to cultivate these characteristics, these qualities, we make ourselves very much accident prone. Right? We, we create the ground and the conditions for those freedom and, and liberation. So Buddhists recognize that the, the difference between those who embark on self-cultivation um, versus those who don't, and that that difference is sizable. It's enormous in his words. It's the difference between enlightened ways of being in the world and unenlightened ways of being in the world. So the Buddha was asked, how many bases of training are there for seeking enlightenment? And the Buddha responded, there are six, generosity, morality, tolerance, energy, meditation, and wisdom. These are the six perfections. 
there are a series of practices or trainings directing oneself towards enlightenment. But the interesting paradox is that it's both the method and the goal. Um, enlightenment can be defined as the practice of these six perfections. If you were to say, well, what is enlightenment? What is an enlightened being? Well, it's someone who practices generosity, morality, tolerance, energy, meditation, and wisdom. So it's both the method and the goal. The quote in the book is, enlightenment just is the path, and the path is enlightenment. Um, in the Soto Zen, Zen school, we have a saying, one minute of sitting, one minute of being a Buddha. It's the same thing, right? Often we think of sitting as being uh, a method to get to the goal of being a Buddha. And this is turning that around and reminding you, no, one minute of sitting, one minute of being a Buddha. Right? Practice the six perfections to gain enlightenment. Enlightenment is the practice of the six perfections. Same thing. So the, the six perfections provide a concrete image of the Buddhist goal or ideal end. And he talks about how, you know, in classical Greek philosophy, they called it the idea of good or the ideal of, go of a good life, which the, the corollary in Buddhist practice is the thought of enlightenment, right? raising the mind of enlightenment. It's that moment where you have, begin to have an idea that it's possible, right? To have an awakening to um, that enlightenment is possible, that there is a different way to be in the world. And that ideal image can give purpose and direction, puts us on the path. It provides a model to direct ourselves towards. And he has a few warnings in the introduction about um, being, you know, be aware of uh, using models that are um, unrealistic. That these, in, in the Buddhist tradition, we have uh, the, the famous bodhisattvas that are talked about in all the ancient stories. Uh, about these ideal perfected characters, right? That uh, kind of embody this, uh, this vision or the thought of enlightenment, right? This ideal. But the warning there is that, you know, just like with any humans and their tendency to exaggerate over time, much of the stories we hear now, two and a half thousand years later, right? Uh, sound like they're not even humans. They sound like magical mythical creatures who could do all kinds of magical powers, right? So if we have that kind of ideal in our head, the unrealistic ideal, um, you know, it's going to be counterproductive. It's going to more prevent you from pursuing the thought of enlightenment rather than what it should be. It should be an inspiration. 
something that inspires you to direct the aspiration for your practice. He also warns us that um, don't get caught up in what we think it should look like, right? That, that uh, this enlightened state is not static, right? It changes just like humans, everything is impermanent. It changes over time. It changes based on the causes and, and conditions, the cultural time and geography of the place the people are, right? And that it's, it's never going to look the same. So don't get trapped or paint yourself into a corner of what you think it looks like. Just keep working towards that freedom and liberation. So the paramitas, which are translated often as perfections, right? He says this is not a very good translation. It's not a great word for it as they can't really be perfected. It's not something that's going to be perfected, that, that there's an end state to it. It's a process of perfecting, right? So we're going to move along a process of perfecting. But the perfections in, in Buddhism, basically, they're, they're known as uh, dimensions of human character, the dimensions of human character that are most important to enlightenment. So what we're perfecting is our character. And in, in Greek, character uh, comes from the, the Greek word for a stamp or engrave, right? It's something that leaves a mark on us, right? So practicing, practicing these perfections, um, generosity, morality, tolerance, energy, meditation, and wisdom, they're going to leave their mark. going to engrave your character. So the six perfections are both the path to enlightenment and enlightenment themselves itself. As the path, it's a system of training, uh, not a set of rules or principles to solve your your moralistic quandaries and questions, right? It's not a guidebook. Instead, it is a system of training, one that is rooted in your daily life. And again, this should sound familiar, right? Just like the Rosetto process, just like the learning record, we're coming back to uh, training in daily life, training in moment to moment. So this is what we do moment to moment permeating our everyday activities. And lastly, the last warning is that it may look like uh, self-cultivation, like this is just a personal individualistic practice. And it may, may very well start there, but don't worry too much about that. If you start thinking about, well, I'm just, I'm just working on myself you know, this is really just self-centered. Am I just caught in the self-centered dream of trying to make myself the most generous person ever, right? When those thoughts come up, <clears throat> don't get too thrown off by them. It may look that way. It often starts there, right? But one of the fruits of this practice, one of the byproducts 
is that it always ends up undermining the self-cultivation in the end. There's no way out of it. If you practice these six perfections, um, pretty soon it won't be about you because that's just where it leads. And Buddhists, you know, they maintain that the beneficiary of self-cultivation is not only you, but those around you, right? Yes, we do this for ourselves, but we also do it for those around us. It's rooted in the bodhisattva vow, right? For the liberation and welfare of all beings because it's the whole of society that needs to be enlightened. Not one person, that's not gonna to be too helpful. But we begin where we are. We begin with ourself and our self-cultivation. We don't have any choice in that one. We have to begin where we are. So that's Dale Wright's overview in a nutshell. And now I saved you 11 pages of reading. And for next time, um, try and read chapter one. It's a little more, it's a lot more heavy than the uh, Rosetto book, but it's worthwhile. And we are one minute out of our, oh, after our time, I apologize for talking so long. So I don't want to keep you guys. If there's any, anyone wants to stick around, ask any final questions or observations, you're welcome to. Everyone else, I, I imagine you were planning to leave at nine, so you need to run. Go ahead, and we will see you next time. Thank you for your shared practice. <laughs>